Hello and welcome to the Q York podcast. It's great to have you with us today and we hope that as you listen, you'll be inspired as we continue on our shared quest together. This podcast is entirely free and yet it's not cheap to put together and wouldn't be possible without the generosity of our supporters. So if you consider yourself a supporter of Q, then please head to qyork.co.uk and hit donate to show your support today because there really is no Q without you. Thank you and enjoy today's message. Hey everybody, it's good to have the opportunity to talk to you again, even if it is uh, sat in front of a screen. Much rather do it in person, but obviously as yet at this moment that is not uh, practically possible. Uh, just want to say thank you as well for those of you who sent uh, kind words and love and prayers this last week, having heard that uh, my health had not been uh, that great. And um, thank you so much. I'm feeling so much better. And um, of course, I have wanted to, as corrective text put it, uh, get my mojo back and get back in the salad. So according to corrective text, the way to deal with uh, uh, being away from something for a while is you need to get back in the salad. Well, I'm all up for that. I'm happy to get back in the salad if that's what corrective text is asking of me. Anyway, uh, what I want to bring to you today, I hope will brighten your day and lift your spirits because it has this amazing, encouraging title, The Massacre of the Innocents. Now, Christmas, I don't know about you, Christmas seems a long, long way away. It seems to have been ages ago. And yet there is an overrun that comes out of the biblical narrative of the Christmas story that I think has some very specific application for us. And I'd like you to listen, uh, take it on board and think about what it is that I have to say, because I think it's very important in the context of our lives and uh, the ongoing situation. Uh, what I have to say to you this morning may seem out of place or irrelevant to some, but history proves that this issue that I'm going to talk about has been a recurrent theme both in the progression and the regression of humanity. This has always been there and needs to be recognised and addressed. And uh, Jesus, the gospel writers and, and, and um, uh, um, those who contributed to the New Testament always also drew attention to this matter, uh, partly because it was sociologically and culturally a reality in their lives, but also because for all of us, in any situation at all time, we need to be aware of this and shape our own lives to try and be a counterbalance to this issue. And the issue that I'm talking about is the use, misuse and abuse of power. Now, now this can happen blatantly or it can happen subtly, but it does happen. Uh, what I mean by blatant is it's right up front, it's in your face, it's obvious to spot. Uh, and that's not a problem when we can blatantly see that happening. The problem is that most use, misuse and abuse of power actually happens at least in its, in its um, early stages uh, much more subtly than that. Uh, we, we understand the issue, particularly in, in situations of war, but also let's take it affecting elections and those kind of things, which has been topical recently 
uh, of how one can subtly, very subtly use, misuse and abuse power. And of course, that then is not seen by the majority as, as what it really is. It's not seen as the use, misuse and abuse of power. Uh, it can often be conveyed as something very, very different. And so, so we buy into the subtlety that is delivered, which then masks from us the dangers that are present within it, that we actually, for the sake of all humanity, uh, need to be looking at and making a stand against. Um, now, of course, use, misuse and abuse of power is not just happen with kings and, and, and presidents. You know, it happens parentally. Uh, some of you are damaged now still, even in later life, because of the use or misuse or abuse of power parentally. Uh, we may have done it to our kids. We need to be aware of that. It happens maritally. Um, it happens politically. It happens sociologically. It happens managerially. Some of you might have had those experiences at work, and I'd be surprised if you haven't. Uh, it happens personally. Um, so so it's, not, it's not something that we're unfamiliar with, but it's just something we don't always categorise in the right way to realise what should be our response and uh, how we should develop our understanding of it. Um, it. This use, misuse and abuse of power can occur by violence or by virus. Now, uh, there are two reasons that I use that, and it's got nothing to do particularly specifically with coronavirus. One is because any preacher worth its salt will try and have two words that start with the same letter, like violence and virus, because um, it just works. It, it, it trips off the tongue. Uh, but I have another reason for using that, which is what I mean by violence and virus is this, that it's easy to spot the misuse or abuse of power when it is violently applied through repression, through ethnic cleansing, uh, through persecution, through bullying, through imprisonment, um, all those kind of um, all those kind of things. It's not so easy to spot when it comes in the form of virus. By that, what I mean is it works like a virus. It subtly enters the system uh, and uh, goes unrecognized for a period of time. But then as it begins to develop, uh, it probably exerts um, a greater convincing power than the whole issue of violence and so so these are the areas that that we we have to be aware of how this this comes now um jesus and the gospel writers as i've, I've already mentioned felt it important enough to demand attention be paid to the understanding of this issue of power and that's what i want to deal with uh this morning now one of the things we have to address is the what has that to do with me attitude. Now, we may not always say that, we may not speak the words, but but our response is often, uh, what has that to do with me? Um, or in other words, what happens in our inner being is, in our inner mind, again, these may not be the words that we would speak, but it exists, is what doesn't affect me doesn't concern me. Now, whether you said those words or not, we live as though 
most of the time we hold that uh, position. What doesn't affect me doesn't concern me. Don't disturb me, don't, don't bother me, don't trouble me. Um, this doesn't really affect me, so it doesn't concern me. Now, now, or we selectively decide which bits affect us, and then we selectively decide which bits we're not going to really be concerned about because of what that may create and the conflict it does. And dealing with the use, misuse and abuse of power is never a comfortable place to be. It makes a demand on us. Now, power does funny things to people. Uh, it always has and it always will. Uh, you have to bear in mind that, that power is an intoxicating thing to certain types of people. If you don't understand that, you'll never understand how and why uh, uh, power is used and abused in a certain way. Uh, and why people would do that, why people would want to do that, because it may not be anything in your personal psyche that says that would make me feel great. But there are many people in our world, uh, many of them finish up in, in high-powered roles, who get high on power. Uh, there are those who it's no longer the money that drives them, it's the need for power that drives them and without that intoxicating sense of power they their lives are like drug addicts who who can't get a fix and uh, whether whether you want to accept it or not or like it or not there are those people who love power above all it is their it's just the thing that they desire above all now now Unfortunately, there appears to be such a naivety in the eyes of people when it comes to understanding the psychology of power. Uh, and it's like, well, because I don't crave power, uh, people may have power and people may be given power, but it's just like they, they're given an authority to do something. But that's a naivety, not understanding the psychology of, of power which you can look into and look into the whole issue of narcissism and those kind of perspectives that are in people's lives and how how psychologically the analysis is that that uh, most people in certain levels of power and uh, pastors have come somewhere into this into this um, uh, spectrum so so you know I, I'm I suppose I'm I'm putting some guilt on myself in this. Uh, is is psychopathic and sociopathic tendencies connected with with narcissism are often the things that that mould people who actually love power. Now, if you cannot understand that people love power, you will struggle to measure their decisions and their actions in 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 a proper and and truthful truthful light uh, see what what you think those who love power are feeling is invariably mostly wrong um, you know we we i say we i don't know or let's use the term ordinary just ordinary joes and jills and whoever um, think that um, 
some of these people in positions of power go to bed at night and just can't sleep. They're so troubled and so worried. Uh, when actually, if you look at this correctly, you will find that people who love power don't go to sleep at well they don't go to bed at night and then can't sleep because of worrying about the decisions of tomorrow what they've done today actually it, the very essence of having the power to make those decisions and to do the things they do and use power the way they do it doesn't trouble them it invigorates them uh, it stimulates them it intoxicates them so you have to come out of that place of thinking um, that people who love power um, you know just it, it's so difficult and so tough for them most of them are there because they want that power uh, now I thank God for people who are willing to take that role and I am not dissing those who are willing to undertake things of government and leadership and authority because we need those people but you better be aware of the kind of person that that draws in mostly speaking and what that may mean uh, for people on the ground whether you be a first century Jew in the time of Jesus or whether you be uh, us now in the 21st um, uh, century, well, let's say in, in, our, in our case, the West. So, so you, you, you have to think about people who love power differently. Um, I, I heard one commentator who studied the life of Winston Churchill and he made a statement that bam, hit me like a brick. He said uh, Winston Churchill loved war. Now, I don't think he meant that Winston Churchill loved people dying uh, or loved massacre um, or, or loved the, t the horror of the battlefield, but, but he did love war. And his whole identity, right from being a young man, was, was, was interspersed and entwined inseparably with the identity uh, the power, the opportunities, the possibilities that were presented in a state of war. And yes, he became a great wartime prime minister. But if you know anything about history, you'll know that uh, Winston, bless his heart, was not a great peacetime prime minister because there was something about his personality and the power that came through a scenario of war that stimulated him to be something. So, so the point I'm making is that we sometimes can't grasp it, but, but powerful people love war. Whether, whether we want to talk politically, and I'm not saying this uh, party politically, but just observationally, uh, remember the whole shenanigans of uh, weapons of mass destruction and going to war um, with Iraq and that... You know, why Why was that pushed? Well, think about that through some of these, these lenses. I know I haven't read the Bible yet, but I'm just trying to be very practical with you uh, in this uplifting message about the massacre of the innocents. Um, see, when, when you really get down to it, our human evolutionary process is probably more marked by an increase in sophistication than an advancement in real care. It can look as though we've become so much more caring and so much more loving, uh, but actually it's probably an increase in sophistication more than an advancement in real care. Now, let me, let me briefly try to explain a little what I mean by that. In, in our evolutionary process, um, we have, we've not come to a place where we really care 
about um, war, killing, all that kind of stuff. What we've done is we can, by sophistication, increasing our sophistication, we can kill more people more effectively in a shorter space of time with the least human interaction possible. And so we keep people off the battlefield, but we can kill more people by staying off the battlefield than we did if we were on the battlefield. And so we, we can look as though we really care, and yet, again, I don't want to get into some things I could talk about but would be controversial, and, um, you know, I don't particularly want to raise those today, but just bear in mind the fact that our process is probably more marked, this evolutionary process in humanity, probably more marked by an increase in sophistication than any advancement in real care, but it gives an image uh, that it's care that's increased rather than sophistication. Um, information and technology can make us believe that we're more advanced than we really are. Just remember that. Uh, the current flow of information, how that information is released, who can get a hold of it, can make us believe that we're more advanced than we really are. Now, let that bring me to why I wanted to talk to you on the subject matter that I raised and where it comes from. See, in, in the narrative surrounding the story of the birth of Jesus, the Christmas story, in Matthew chapter 2, uh, it talks about King Herod, who was the uh, king, the Jewish king, who was a puppet of the Roman Empire, but in, in Judea at the time of Jesus. Um, and when these guys that we have called the wise men, who were the magi, magic men, uh, talked about that in a previous talk. These uh, Zoroastrian Persian astrologers who through astrology had made an assumption and a reading that a king was born, the whole thing of the star, and of course you, most of you will be familiar with that story. And yet I told you how fascinated I am that um, these guys who were Zoroastrians, that was their religion, uh, and uh, were Persian, so they weren't, Jewish, wasn't part of a, any Jewish prophecy or promise, um, and were astrologers, star readers, uh, ones who are used to express to us that this thing is accessible and available to those who are looking for it, uh, regardless of creed, colour, um, nationality, background, whatever. Uh, I, I just love the whole essence of that. Anyway, these guys come following the star, this is the story, to Jerusalem where Herod is, believing that Herod would obviously know uh, where they need to look. So, so we get in Matthew chapter 2 this thing of when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Um, and when he gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So this would imply several things to me. Number one, um, 
these guys actually knew what was supposed to happen, where it was supposed to happen, and to some degree when it was supposed to happen, and did absolutely squat. So they weren't prepared to get off their backsides and go look for truth, look for presence, look for the divine, um, look for revelation, look for incarnation. Uh, no, they were too caught up in their books and their power to bother getting up and going to grab this new thing where these, these foreigners uh, were willing to make a long journey, which is probably a two-year journey. Again, I'm not here to talk about the timing of that, but here's, here's what, what bothers me. <coughs> it says, when Herod the king heard this, <coughs> excuse me, he was troubled. And get this, and all Jerusalem with him. I find that fascinating that that something happens that upsets the status quo or, or introduces into the conversation, into the into the experience, uh, something new that might demand a change of understanding, perspective, belief, um, receptivity, and uh, what happens. Herod gets troubled and all Jerusalem get troubled with him. Well, it, you know, it's a bit like I've experienced this. When you start to introduce into church life a different way of seeing some things or understanding some things that people have seen a certain way for a long time, you get this King Herod was troubled and all Jerusalem with him response. Uh, when actually what's hypocritical about it is the whole essence of the particularly the Christian gospel, rests on, on responding to things like this. But the truth is we actually don't like to respond to that kind of change because it disturbs us and upsets our equilibrium and uh, makes us feel insecure. So on the one hand, getting into this just for a few minutes, on the one hand we have the beauty of incarnation, God in flesh in the world. And on the other hand we have the inexpressible horror of extermination because what King Herod did was he instructed the, the, the wise men, the magi, go and find where the young child is and when you found him come back and tell me so that I might go and worship him. Um, but you see the problem is, and this is my point, it was such a threat to his current power base that he had no intention of sacrificing what that power offered him and gave him and would rather misuse and abuse the power than actually use his position to, to in humility, submit to uh, something fresh and something new and something necessary. So we've got the, the beauty of the incarnation, God in flesh in the world. The other hand, we've got the inexpressible horror of extermination. So what King Herod did, according to the Bible narrative, is that when the wise men didn't come back and tell him where Jesus was, he worked out uh, the timings and he gave an instruction that all the male babies under two in that area should be killed and that's where the title the historic title of the massacre of the innocents come from that innocents were massacred because Herod did not want to lose his power uh, 
and did not want his rule to be compromised in any way, shape or form. So we have this inexpressible horror of extermination. Now, we cannot let the beauty of one make us disregard the reality of the other. So we can't make the beauty of the incarnation, oh, how wonderful, you know, God becomes flesh in the form of Jesus in a baby born in a manger. We can't let that make us disregard the reality of the other, the Herod's spirit, the misuse and abuse of power that ultimately tries to kill anything and everything that might challenge its perspective, its position, um, its, its ability to, to exert that power. Now, now bear in mind that Jesus was born into a world where the powerful exerted power in ways always expressed as being for the good of the people and the peace of the population. Even the Roman crucifixions were supposed to express to the Jews, look, you can live in peace, we can live in harmony, uh, but in order to show you that we will not allow anything to question our definition of peace and harmony, we are going to crucify every rebel along the road to Jerusalem, even if it's thousands, we will crucify them. But we want you to know this is for the good of the people, this is for the peace of the population. And Rome was guilty of that, and religion has always been guilty of that. And um, uh, the sad thing is for Herod, Herod to, to convince others that the slaughter of these innocents was a just and noble thing uh, to carry out, he had to have somehow got them to feel that, that, that what was being done was for the good of the people. And it's interesting throughout history that people will murder babies if they have gotten into them. This is for the good of the people. The Holocaust happened because it was gotten into the minds of people. This was for the good of the people. This is for the good of the nation. You know, whether it's the Rohingya Muslims or, or East Timor or all those various aspects of, of, of conflict and suppression in the world, it usually happens. The people who carry that out and willingly submit to agree to the process is because they actually have been convinced to believe this is for the this is for the good of the people and the peace of the population. Um, and the question is, was it? When you step back where we are and see what was going on, you say, no, there is a price to pay for this that is much greater than 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 anyone's anyone's right to express that this is for the good of the people. Actually, what it was ultimately about uh, was Herod's power and uh, the power of the religion of that time. And of course, for Rome, the power of Rome all worked out for those things. Now, I have to say that Herod will still kill babies rather than risk a challenge to his status or power. And I have to say there's a little bit of Herod in all of us that when challenges come that, 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 that touch our status and our power or our personal belief or our personal point of view, our personal position. The truth is, in essence, we still are willing to kill babies. We'll kill the baby of fresh thought. We'll kill the baby of a new way of seeing things. We'll kill the baby of a new understanding, a new revelation. We still do it. We still do it. There's a bit of Herod in all of us. And that's why we need to recognize, even in ourselves, that there has to be a humility that comes in the space of our own personal power 
that allows the child to live and see what happens from there. So, so it's evident to me that it was possible to convince others that the slaughter of the innocents was a just and noble thing to do in, in order for them to carry it out. So this subtle, um, uh, this subtle viral impartation of, of the use and misuse of power, but not read for what it is, somehow that was gotten into the people so they cooperated in a process that they should have resisted. See, also one of the great tools of the exertion of power itself is the privilege to edit. And the power to edit has always been present. Here's how it's worked historically. In the past, history is always recorded through the eyes of the victors. You know that, I know that. And what does that allow? It allows the victors to edit the information, to edit the circumstantial uh, contributing factors to what happened that always makes them look as though there was no other alternative. This is how it had to be. It's always recorded through the eyes of the victors. Now in the present, uh, the power to edit is through what we see represents the whole. So if I, for example, let me give you a personal example. Um, uh, 18 months ago, two years ago, I started to have people ask me in my frequent trips to America, um, what's it like having cities in your country that are no-go areas for white people? Now, of course, I'm like, what do you mean by that? Oh, well, it, you know, it's obvious there are places like Birmingham that are now under Sharia law and white people can no longer enter the city because now the city is being run by Muslims and this has happened in, in other cities. Uh, and therefore, what's your response to that when in your own country you cannot enter these cities? Well, of course, I'm like shocked. Uh, but you see, what I'm showing you is that the, that the, the power to edit affects people's mind and psyche so that what they see represents the whole. So they've seen one report about Sharia law, the application of Sharia law, and certain things in certain areas of cities like Birmingham that have now become that, that no one but Muslims under Sharia law can enter those cities. Now, if you're, if you're British, you'll know as much as I know that that's simply just wildly untrue and you think how can you ever draw that conclusion but you see because of the way things work now what we see represents the whole so if I show a riot in one street of one city in South Africa the the impression is that all cities and all streets in South Africa are now um, under the problem of rioting and uh, criminality and of course you know and I know stood back that that's not true but the problem is when we are presented those messages we see as it represents the whole so even in our current situation weeping gig can be given information that is specific but but the power to edit makes it represent the whole and then we create our response according to what really in essence is a distorted understanding because um, one of the great tools of the exertion of power is the privilege to edit, to give you the information that people in power want you to hear 
so that you will develop uh, an understanding from that alone and uh, thereby what happens is you become uh, ruled and and uh, can be abused and misused by those powers. An untethered power always rides on the back of magnified fear. Wherever you see fear being magnified, you need to ask the question, is there in line with this untethered power that is being exerted because it will always ride on the back of magnified fear and then within that magnified fear there will become uh, certain levels of promise to which you can aspire but only providing that you submit yourself to the requirements of the magnified fear which what it's doing all the time is it is it is re-emphasizing and re-energizing uh, the use of power and often the, the misuse and abuse. Now I hope some of you don't feel I'm, I'm, this is anti-government or whatever in the situation that we're in but it is it is a wake-up call to say if we are not careful uh, power becomes abused and misused because most of those in power that's the very thing that makes them tick. So Jesus challenged our perception of power um, in many ways. Uh, I think even the whole idea of Jesus born in Bethlehem it says Bethlehem you know, the least among the princes of Judah, out of you will come a ruler, was trying to get through to us that, 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 that true, humble, functioning, people-driven, world-changing power comes from the humility of, uh, of, of not position, but it comes from the, from the, from the, the spirit of impartation that, that, is the power is not coming from abuse. The power is just coming from truth. So, um, uh, so, so we've got this thing, Jesus challenging our perception of power. Uh, Matthew 20 is one reference to this. Jesus called them to himself and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and those who are great exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you, but whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. All I'm asking today is that you have the openness of mind and heart to recognise some of these elements that Jesus was so willing to challenge because if we don't recognise them, what happens is it's not the power of servanthood and humility uh, that we experience, but it's the power of autocracy and, and dominance and control and manipulation that we allow to prosper. And at the end of the day, when that is done, people only ever suffer and the innocence become massacred so that the powerful can protect their position of power. The greatest casualty of power is freedom. Please bear that in mind. 
And the problem is in that issue that repetitive behavior becomes habitually accepted. If you can get somebody to do something and accept something repetitively, then it becomes habitually accepted to the point where then we lose the inability to even see what's going on. And then we lose our voice because we become weary. We become fatigued in the situation and we don't want to bother ourselves. We just want it all to be over. So let me finish with this. Weariness makes us go with the flow. Weariness makes us feel resistance is futile and that, hey, what's happening must be for our good. But Paul wrote to the Galatian church and said, look, in their position of living under uh, foreign rule and foreign power in the same way that Judea and all of those places were at that time, he said, let us not grow weary while doing good. Now, what do we mean doing good? Doing good is not just complying with a set of rules. Doing good is the recognition of the whole perspective of this and trying to ensure uh, that people, uh, the oppressed, the healthy, the rich, the poor, people come out of this with, with a scenario that allows us to live in a place of freedom, not slide into a place of oppression and control. Um, it says, let us not grow weary while doing good. And I think the good is recognizing and just seeking to make sure that we do what is necessary to stop the use and misuse and abuse of power. It says, for in due season, we will reap if we don't lose heart. So I know it's not been a bit of a whoopoo, happy, yee here we go message today. And how could it ever be with the title, The Massacre of the Innocents? But I did feel it was necessary as a voice into your life just to at least bring this uh, issue of the use, misuse and abuse of power to your attention. Because it is vital and if we don't recognise it and learn to understand it, we may find ourselves in a position uh, that then... Uh, freedom, our own freedom, has been compromised in ways that we do not wish it to be. And, uh, and then, of course, um, what we reap will make us lose heart. But I'm with Paul when he says, let's not grow weary while doing good. For in due season, we shall reap if we don't lose heart. And believing we're going to reap something good. Uh, so don't be afraid. Uh, speak your voice. Don't get... Um, weary, don't become complacent and compliant to the degree that we're not prepared to enter the debate. But let's make sure that uh, what Jesus wanted us to be in the context of power that becomes abusive, misused, uh, that we be that people. We be that people. We keep raising that question and we lift that up the agenda. So I bless you, I love you, and uh, I'll try to be a little bit more cheerful next time I talk to you. Have a wonderful day. Thanks for listening to another Q York podcast. If you've been inspired by what you've heard today, then why not email us at info at qyork.co.uk and let us know who you are and where you're listening from. We love that you're listening to us and we'd love to hear from you too. Did you know you can also watch all of the talks from Q on our YouTube channel? Just go to youtube.com forward slash Q Church York. We look forward to having you with us again soon. Until then, enjoy the quest.